turn in your Bible to Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10 is found on page 1166 of the Pew Bible. And in Mark chapter 10, we see a number of case studies of receiving the kingdom of God. You have the children who have nothing who receive the kingdom of God. You have the rich young ruler who has everything going for him, who does not receive the kingdom of God. And this evening we look at the disciples. The disciples are ready to receive the kingdom of God because they believe the kingdom is the way to glory, that Jesus will give them whatever they want. And before glory comes service and suffering. So let's read our passage, Mark chapter 10, I'm going to reading verses 32 to 45. To so listen, this is God's word. Now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them, and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. And then he took the twelve aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said to him, We are able. And so Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink the cup that I drink, and with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but is for those for whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Amen. May God bless us the reading of his word. Well, our sermon title this evening is Serve or Be Served. And this is a great sermon to preach after the congregational meeting yesterday, where it was report after report of all the service opportunities that you as a congregation are involved in. It's exciting to be part of a church that serves. It's often said that in a church that 20% of the people do 80% of the work. I'm very thankful that is not the case here in our church. And yet it would be wrong for us to rest on our laurels. The danger of becoming passive and let, uh, let others serve us is real. And this thinking often comes from this desire that we have for glory. We want recognition. 
We want to be served. We're not that different from James and John in our passage. And so I want you to notice your call to serve, not to be served. For this is what Jesus did in saving you. So firstly, have your focus on the cross of Christ, verses 32 to 34. I was reading a news article yesterday about a police officer who has been nicknamed Bruton's fastest cop by his colleagues. He has a 100% record when it comes to chasing down suspects on foot. And nearly six years as a police officer, nobody attempting to flee from him has got away. And the officer, who's also a rugby player, so it's no surprising, said, I really enjoy my job. Well... <laughs> We see a determination in our passage this evening as Jesus goes to Jerusalem. And Hebrews 12, verse 2, we read, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus is determined to complete his mission. Hebrews speaks of the joy set before him. Now, this is not speaking of happiness No, but Jesus saw what the cross would accomplish, the salvation of God's people. That's why he is the author and the finisher of our faith. That's why he came into this world. It is his life's purpose. And the hour has now come for Jesus to complete his mission. And this is evident in the determination that Jesus shows in going to Jerusalem. He goes ahead of his followers I wonder if you've ever been with a group of people, you realize we're falling behind schedule here and we're going to be late. And so you you need to get the group moving. And so you go ahead of them, encouraging them to pick up the pace. Now, it's not that we are to imagine that Jesus is speed walking to Jerusalem, but he wasn't going to be distracted. He was not going to let his followers slow him down from accomplishing his purpose. And we read of the reaction of those who are with him to Jesus' determination. The disciples are amazed. Others who are with them are afraid. Ferguson writes, they could not fully understand it, but it unnerved them just because it drew them into his own orbit. They sensed that his commitment required their commitment. And so they realized they weren't just along for the ride, Although it's clear they didn't fully understand Jesus' mission, they also knew that going to Jerusalem was not simply going for a day trip to see the sights. They could tell from Jesus' determination that they're coming now to the climax of Jesus' ministry. And whatever happened, it was going to affect them. Jesus then speaks to 12 disciples separately, and he predicts for the third time his mission. And in this third prediction, we see a lot more detail. This is the first time that Jesus mentions Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is not a neutral city. This is the capital. It's where the kings of Israel sat on the throne. This is where the temple is located. And so it's full of symbolism. But Jesus is not going to Jerusalem to be crowned king. Instead, he's going there to die. He also describes who would be behind his death. It would be the chief priests and the scribes who would condemn him to death and give him over to the Gentiles. His death will be that of an execution accompanied with much suffering and abuse. 
And then on the third day, he would rise again. Well, this is shocking what Jesus is saying, that it would be the well-respected religious leaders who would be the ones to condemn him to death. The disciples were probably expecting a fight with the Romans, not that their very own religious leaders, men who also had been waiting for the Messiah, would determine that Jesus must die and that they would ask the Romans to do it. The Romans are the very people that the Jews want to be liberated from, and so it must have been hard to understand that their leaders would hand their Messiah over to the enemy. But the end of the prophecy, Jesus says, he will rise. And so his death will not be the end. There will be new life. There will be hope. And this is the climax of Jesus' mission. It would be his death on the cross. That is the focus of his mission. Through his death, he would finish his work. And so his death is not an accident, for through his death, he would bring life. He would bring a new start. He would establish his kingdom. And so he's bringing his plan to completion now. And he did this for his people. He went to Jerusalem to suffer and to die on your behalf. There's only one way of salvation. This is not one of many options. No, this is the way. And that's why the cross is so important. Christ was focused on going to the cross. And you too should be focused on the cross of Christ. For through his death, you are saved. Well, secondly, beware of seeking your own glory. Verses 35 to 37. So notice Jesus is specifically speaking to his disciples. They are to get this. They are to be prepared for Jesus' death. But also know that he would rise again. Now, the disciples... They don't have a great record of understanding Jesus' predictions. Peter rebuked Jesus for predicting his death. And so Jesus had to tell Peter that his opposition is just how Satan would react. That God's way of salvation would be different than man's way. Well, the second time, the disciples responded by arguing about who is the greatest. They understood that Jesus is establishing his kingdom they want to be recognized as great in this kingdom. Well, clearly this thought is still in the minds of James and John, and it continued to show that they had not fully understood Jesus's prediction. James and John want Jesus to do something for them, and they even want Jesus to agree before he knows what it is when they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Now, Jesus had just told James and John what he is going to do for them, that he's going to Jerusalem to suffer and to die. Well, how would you respond to the news that your leader, your teacher, your friend is going to die? Well, you would be grieving. But their response is surprising. They weren't grieving that Jesus is going to die. Instead, they're thinking about themselves. They had grasped that Jesus is going to be exalted in some way. And so they want the two most important positions in the kingdom. To sit on his left and right in places of power and prestige. And so their request was shockingly inappropriate. It would be like being invited to a wedding and then demanding that you be in all the wedding photos. That you get the position of standing in between the bride and the groom. 
Well, Jesus had explained his mission to them, that he was going to suffer and die and rise again. Well, they were focused on his rising again, thinking uh, this would be when his kingdom would be made complete, that Jesus would be ruling an earthly kingdom. And so they want the best jobs in this kingdom. So these lowly fishermen, they saw it as an opportunity for status to be recognized as important. And what James and John are doing is not that far from each of us. We all desire recognition. We all want power over others, even if it's just within our family. We want to be treated as important. We want to be treated as VIPs. Why do hotels and cruises sell these VIP packages? Well, because it feeds our desire to feel important. It's a great selling technique. But what is sad is when this attitude enters the church, when we want recognition and to be seen as more important than others. And so this desire to seek glory, it's not beyond any of us. And so you need to be aware of that. Well, thirdly, you are to prepare for a future of suffering. Verses 38 to 40. Jesus says to James and John, you do not know what you ask, meaning they have misunderstood what Jesus was doing. They were interested in glory, but misunderstood that there would be no glory without suffering first. Jesus responds, are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And the term cup here is an Old Testament expression. We just sang from it in that psalm earlier. And it refers to receiving God's judgment, his wrath for sins. Baptism too here means to be washed over with God's judgment. So Jesus would suffer God's anger for our sins on the cross. Wilmhurst says, just as Jesus submitted to water baptism by John the Baptist, identifying himself with all the sinners who stood in that line in front and behind, so now he will submit himself to the death that rightfully belongs to them all. Can James and John do what Jesus is about to do? Can they die to save sinners? Can they bring down the barrier that separates us from God? Well, we can, they say. But this was blind self-confidence, for they clearly cannot. They can't save others, as they need to be saved from their own sinful rebellion themselves. They need to be saved from God's righteous anger against their sin. As Jesus says, they don't know what they're asking. But in another sense, the disciples can. For when they finally understand Jesus' mission and accept his death as a means for their salvation, they will drink the cup that Jesus drank. Yes, Jesus' death is unique, but the disciples, they would also have to suffer too. James would soon be executed by Herod Agrippa. And church history describes the death of all the other apostles who were martyred, all except for John, who faced imprisonment on the island of Patmos. And so suffering for our faith, it's so alien to us living in the West. But more and more, we are seeing Christianity marginalized. Those who hold to Christian teachings are described as bigots, as narrow-minded, as intolerant, as belonging to another age. Increasingly, it's becoming hard to work in particular jobs because in doing so, you have to hold on to their woke agendas. 
even within families, it's becoming difficult where certain family members hold to an LGBT identity and they demand that you accept them. And if you don't, well, you're cancelled, you're ostracized. And so persecution and suffering, it's not being thrown to the lions. Instead, it's more subtle, but yet it's still real. Well, if you're seeking glory like James and John, you will take shortcuts. You will compromise to get it. This past week, the Church of England made the decision that Church of England ministers could not conduct same-sex marriages. However, they could offer a blessing on those in same-sex relationships. And so they are compromising to gain credence from the world. No, you must be prepared to suffer, to bear shame for the sake of Christ. And that will mean to be separate from this world. It may even mean to be rejected by your family. McCoy says, Jesus has no time for sleepy followers who play it safe and retreat into the shadows, dreaming of an empty path to glory. Has the time come for you to follow him on the road. So you are to prepare to suffer. Well, fourthly, you are called to serve. Verses 41 to 44. Now, it's not surprising that the other 10 disciples are indignant with James and John, but their reaction shows that they too are concerned about their status. They didn't want James and John to be seen as more important than the rest of them. But this isn't how Jesus wants them to think. He wants them to focus on serving others rather than focusing on themselves. Jesus reminds them of how most people operate. You know that those who are considered as rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? We probably all experience people in authority who use it as an opportunity to lord it over people. We often use the phrase, power has gone to his head, meaning they think too highly of themselves and they think they can do whatever they wish. Just look at our politicians today and just see how power corrupts. They are in positions of power and prestige. Rather than serve the people, they are serving themselves. Look at some of our celebrities, James Corden or Ellen DeGeneres, who have been recently, recently been described as bullies by their staff. The power has gone to their heads. We're used to people wanting to be seen as the greatest, pushing others away to get what they want, and they simply use others to accomplish their desire. But Jesus uses this as a contrast to how his followers should be. Their focus shouldn't be on their status. It should instead be on service. Ferguson writes, in the kingdom of God, true greatness is measured by our service, not by the number of our servants. It is seen not in how high up the ladder we have climbed, but how far down the ladder we are prepared to climb for the sake of others. True discipleship has at its heart letting go of our desire for honor in this world in order to bestow honor on others. Well, this is the upside down principle of the kingdom where the first will be last and the last will be first. You want glory? Well, you are to serve others. You want to be seen as great? Well, then you need to look to the needs of others. And the church should demonstrate this value more than any other place. 
And yet, sadly, the church can be a place that's full of squabbles, of pettiness, and hurt pride. We can be so quick to look down on others and think we are better. We can be so focused on our own interests that it's hard to consider the interests of others. And children especially. This is something you have to work at from an early age. I hope you see that you're in a privileged position and that there are many children in this church. You enjoy a rich fellowship with children your age. There are many children who go to churches and there are no other kids their age. And so you are to value the children here in this church, the other children in your Sunday school class. You are to take an interest in them. You are to encourage them. You are to pray for them. That's a good challenge. Pray for the other kids in your Sunday school class. Pray for your Sunday school teacher. And um, that's something, as you pray for them, pray that you would have opportunities to serve them. So recognize the blessing that you have here in the fellowship that you have with the other children in this church. Don't think that you're better than them. And this is not just for our children. It's for you as adults as well. Prayer is a great way to begin serving others. Use the prayer calendar. Lena has extras in her mailbox if you have misplaced yours. And when you're praying for others in the church, think of how you can encourage them, how you can love them. Yesterday, as I said earlier, was a great time to consider the work in our church, to hear of all the people who are involved in ministry in this church. But if you're not involved, I encourage you to consider ways you can serve. Young people especially, too often we, you can take it for granted. You come in, you take a seat without understanding all the work that is involved in running a church service. It takes many people who are willing to serve, whether it's having folk um, on the sound desk to make sure all the technical stuff is working, whether it's having folk down in the nursery taking care of our infants, whether it's making meals and cleaning up after the meals for our student lunches. All these ministries were asking for volunteers yesterday. So consider, can I serve in this capacity? Can I serve the children in this church? Can I serve the students in this church? Or can I serve in another way in this church? And so it begins with an attitude of seeing others before yourself and doing so. You are great. You are first. You have glory. Well, fifthly and finally, Christ came to serve you, to sacrifice himself for you, to have life and glory. Verse 45. So Jesus is the supreme example of what he's calling his disciples to do. Jesus is not grasping for power and authority. He has it. And twice in this passage, he uses the title Son of Man to describe himself. And this title comes from the book of Daniel, where it describes the Son of Man in glorious terms, coming with the clouds of heaven to the Ancient of Days, to God the Father. And we read that dominion and glory and kingdom was given to him, that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. So the one who deserves to be served, the one who is owed wholehearted service by everyone in this world, is the one who is serving He has come to be a servant. That's why you often hear Christians call Jesus the servant king. His service is ultimately that he gave his life as a ransom for many. 
And this word ransom, it should bring to mind hostage situations. I'm sure you'll remember 15 years ago, it was a frequent occurrence, occurrence for ships to be hijacked in the Indian Ocean by Somali pirates. One British couple were kidnapped from their sailing boat off the coast of the Seychelles, and the Somali pirates demanded a ransom of $4 million. And the couple were released over a year later after $800,000 of ransom was paid. And ransom situations are extremely difficult. We feel compassion for those who have been kidnapped. We want to see them released from the misery that they are in. It shouldn't matter how much it costs to release them. We can't put a price on human life. And yet we also demand justice. We do not want evil men to get away with violating the law as well as getting their ransom demands. And so as a result, governments are not prepared to negotiate with the pirates or with the terrorists to prevent these hostage situations from ever occurring. But here in verse 45, we read of a hostage situation where there is both justice and compassion. Now, the hostages are you and I. We are held captive to our sin. We are in this condition from the day we were born. We didn't suddenly get taken hostage by the sin pirate. We've always been in this condition. And what is the ransom price? Well, it is our death. The wages of sin is death. For justice to be complete, the sinner has to die for the sins in his life. And this is not something that someone else can do for you. A friend or a family member, they can't help you out because they're in the same position. They're also hostages. They're also slaves to sin. And so it takes someone who is sinless to pay the price. And so Jesus Christ, he fits the description. Even though he is the son of man, even though he deserves worship, he came not to receive worship. Instead, he came to serve. And so his death is a service to us. For his death, his blood that was shed on the cross, it was necessary to satisfy the ransom demands. Now, often the work of Christ is confused by this false idea that Jesus is paying the ransom to Satan to release sinners from the plight that they are in. Well, that's not true. Remember, sin is an offense to God, and God has to punish sin. He punishes sin in hell. So remember, it's not Satan that punishes people by sending them to hell. This is something that God does. So the work of Christ on the cross was not to make payment to Satan, but to God the Father. And so on the cross, justice was made complete. Christ took upon himself God's wrath for sin. And since he rose again, he overcame death. He proved that justice for sin was made complete. God is satisfied. No further payments are needed. And so this was the service. This, is, this was the, serve, the compassion offered by the Son of Man to the many. And it's, it's an interesting phrase, for the many. Christ has not come to save a few people, but many people. It's a definite number. It includes you if you're trusting in Christ for salvation. No longer are you a hostage to sin. Now you have freedom. And since Christ is the perfect servant, you and I can have confidence of knowing glory through him. Jesus' service is greater than our service, 
For too often we behave more like James and John. Our service will not lead to glory, for it's imperfect and it's often selfish. And that is why our hope is in Jesus Christ and in his perfect service. In your response to this work of Christ, it should still be that of service, albeit not perfect. C.T. Studd, the famous and wealthy England cricketer, said, If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. C.T. Studd gave up his promising cricket career, his wealth, his academics to serve God as a missionary in China and in India and in Africa, right up to his death. So remember, you are called to serve, not to be served, for this is what Christ did in saving you. Well, recently I heard the powerful story from World War II of the U.S. Air Force bomber named Mi Amigo, and it was returning uh, to its base in England after a bombing mission over occupied Denmark. But during that mission, it was very uh, heavily damaged by enemy fighter aircraft. And so as its engines were faltering, it emerged out of the low cloud over England to find itself flying over the city of Sheffield. It's a heavily built-up area. And so to avoid crashing into people's homes, the pilot spotted an area of green grass, a park where he could safely crash land the plane. But then in approaching the park, the pilot discovered there were children there. They were playing soccer. And the pilot waved at the children to get away. And the children misunderstood. They simply waved back, not realizing the precarious state of the plane. And so the pilot instead crashed the plane into the trees at the end of the park, in doing so, sparing the lives of the children. But sadly, all 10 servicemen on board died. One of those children uh, was an eight-year-old, Tony Folds, who never forgot this ultimate sacrifice that these men gave to spare his life. And so a memorial was set up for these 10 men, And for the last 70 years, Tony has been tending this memorial every day, keeping the memory of what those men did for him alive. And so for the 75th anniversary, a couple of years back, Tony was instrumental in organizing a fly past of U.S. Air Force planes and RAF planes. And thousands of people came and heard the story of what these 10 men did. Tony has served these men by diligently reminding the city of Sheffield of their sacrifice. Well, how will you respond to the sacrifice that Jesus made for you? James and John, they wanted to be served. They want glory. But Jesus offered something far more valuable. He offered himself. And in doing so, he saves them and he saves you and I. So you and I were called not to serve, not to be served. For this is what Christ did in saving you. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do ask for forgiveness. So often we are like James and John. We're seeking positions of power and status. Instead, Lord, humble us to be servants, ready even to suffer in service to you. And we thank you for Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate servant, for through him we have life. And so help us to respond to Christ's sacrifice by diligently serving you and serving your people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Well, please turn your psalm book to Psalm 49a. Psalm 49a, the psalm speaks of a ransom price and how not one of us can pay it. Well, only Christ can pay the ransom, and in doing so, he gives us life. So let's stand and sing Psalm 49a. <laughs> 